Kenner's new Star Wars action figures, each sold separately. I got you now, Ben Kenobi. When you are the kid with the box full of Star Wars toys, everyone wants to see the figures. Maybe not you so much, but they want to see the figures. Now playing podcast and Star Wars action news presents the review of Plastic Galaxy, the story of Star Wars toys. That's so cool. Wow. Then let me see it. Let me... Hosted by Marjorie, Arnie, and Jerry. Now I know the force is with us. Go to nowplayingpodcast.com every Tuesday for another movie review. And go to swactionnews.com for more Star Wars collecting coverage. Have the oceans far below, through the stars and heavens glow. Take control and take us home on these rockers. Today we're discussing Plastic Galaxy, the story of Star Wars toys. Starring Steve Sansweet, Gus Lopez, Tom Burgess, Jason Luttrell, Bill McBride. Directed by Brian Stillman. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing and host of Star Wars Action News, a Star Wars collecting podcast. This is Marjorie, co-host of Star Wars Action News. Occasionally, I'm on Now Playing podcast. Hey guys, this is Jerry. I do uh, vintage viewpoint collecting segments over on Star Wars Action News. And of course, you may know me from a handful of Now Playing reviews, Transformers, G.I. Joe, and the like. Great to be here. And this is something different for both shows. This is kind of a combination show, perhaps the ultimate crossover show between Star Wars Action News and Now Playing. And for Star Wars Action News listeners who don't know about Now Playing, Now Playing is a weekly podcast at nowplayingpodcast.com where we review movies. We've done the whole Batman series, the whole Star Trek series, Friday the 13th, all of the Marvel movies, every Marvel movie, including David Hasselhoff's Nick Fury film. For Now Playing listeners who don't know about Star Wars Action News, that's where Marjorie and I got our start podcasting back in 2005, coming up on our 10th anniversary of the show, all about Star Wars collecting. Everything from Band-Aids, shampoo bottles, up to very expensive statues, prop replicas, actual props. And a primary focus there is Star Wars action figures. I've been a Star Wars collector. I had the toys when I was a kid, of course, back collecting them 79 through 85, got back into Star Wars collecting in 1993-94 with video games that were coming back when Star Wars had its resurgence, and I have been a hardcore Star Wars collector ever since. Marjorie and I have presented at many Star Wars celebrations and other conventions discussing Star Wars toys, both old and new. And Jerry, you presented with us at Star Wars Celebration. Yeah, I've, um, I'm a Star Wars collecting, what I say, I'm a lifer. I can't remember a day where I didn't have a Star Wars figure in my hand, and I collected all the way through the mid-80s, picked it back up in the late 80s. I think I had like maybe two years off where I focused on Transformers and G.I. Joe, which uh, one of the main reasons I was involved in those retrospectives. And I've been involved in it ever since, and yeah, so I've done a lot of uh, some work with you guys at uh, Star Wars Celebration, and obviously on the podcast, I think I started doing Vintage Viewpoint Reviews probably like in 2009. Been doing it for a few years, just reviewing Kenner and a lot of the vintage toys and vintage collectibles from, you know, we're calling vintage late 70s, early 80s, that sort of uh, era that really this film covers. So it's a good crossover, a good opportunity for us to get our uh, chocolate and our peanut butter, if you will. And this is kind of an interesting review for Now Playing. This is the first time 
we're reviewing a documentary. You know, we kind of joked before we started recording, what was the story arc for the characters and things like that. We normally do fiction films. I almost said big budget Hollywood films. Then I remembered we've spent a lot of time doing Children of the Corn this year. But <laughs> this is the first time we're really looking at a documentary film. But this one's kind of an interesting one to me. I felt it was worth reviewing because... It's a Star Wars documentary that's making a bit of a buzz. It's about to get its iTunes release. It actually is one of the few documentaries. There's tons of Star Wars documentaries out there. But this is one of the few to get really widespread distribution and kind of make a bit of a splash in the both Star Wars and just cultural community. Now, I can't say I watch a lot of documentaries, but I watch some. I kind of do. Netflix has a lot of them, and they're good time killers like which ones well don't watch blackfish people it's very sad and you cry but a lot of times i'll watch them well the one on meth was really good that they had national geographic documentary about people who do meth some of the ones on weather events are very good so i i would say that i, I do watch enough to be able to give you an opinion on that yeah and my documentary watching it's slim but they're very related to what we're doing today. Like, for instance, uh, Marjorie, like you said, uh, Netflix has got a bunch of them. And I uh, watched uh, with a buddy of mine into retro video gaming. So we watched that King of Kong documentary, A Fistful oh, of Quarters. That one is great. Mm -hmm. I, yes. No, that's a really, really well put together uh, documentary. Even if some things may or may not be embellished, who knows the the true story. But it, but it becomes a good film. And then soon after that, I don't think this was ever streaming, but I got disc from Netflix for a movie called Darkon. It was about people who LARP. And yeah, if you want to watch something make you feel a little bit better about yourself, then I suggest you go see that. <laughs> I'll give that... <laughs> I'll give that a recommend right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, uh, hey, I'm, I'm not judging those who LARP, but the particular people in this video, yeah, moving on. <laughs> For me, most of the ones I watch are somewhat entertainment related. You mentioned King of Kong. That was good. Confessions of a Superhero, which follows four of the cosplayers outside Man's Chinese Theater. That's really interesting. Those are the ones I'm drawn to. I've seen a couple of the Michael Moore films. I'm by no means a Michael Moore fan, but I am a fan of Morgan Spurlock, and I've seen a lot of his stuff from Super Size Me and his Comic-Con one, and even had a TV show. And that's the thing that gets me with documentaries, is there's such a fine line, in my opinion, between, say, a cinematic documentary and, like, an episode of A&E Biography or VH1 Behind the Music. I mean, where that line is is ever-shifting. But when I see a documentary and, like, King of Kong or Super Size Me, those really tell stories, in my opinion. But a lot of documentaries are more kind of behind-the-music type stuff, where it's informative, it's educational, but it doesn't necessarily transcend and become a movie to me. Do you kind of see where I'm differentiating that there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. One's more like a just this happened, then this happened, this happened. It's like a time progression to take you from point A to point B, but there's not a necessarily a, for lack of better words, a point. You pick up on things that you're interested in, but it's not trying to really... King of Khan focused very heavily, you know, the theme was the winner who never lost and the loser never wins. And you had that, like, two very different kinds of people trying to compete. So it really took a certain 
segment, a certain theme from that overall story and focused on it and kind of told its own little story. Like I said, some of the things may have ended up being embellished to make it more entertaining than it maybe should have been, but the end result's the same, a, a good documentary. But no, I, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, and I also think about some of the documentaries I've watched. This has been very popular in the time we've been doing now playing are these documentaries like Never Sleep Again or His Name is Jason, which are retrospectives and kind of behind-the-scenes information about horror films, where they get a lot of the actors and directors and talk about the making of the film. But I think the difference is really one of character. You brought up how we're really focused on a couple characters in King of Kong. In Supersize Me and the Morgan Spurlock films, we're either focused on Morgan himself or a couple very basic characters. Confessions of a Superhero had a couple major characters, a couple minor characters, and anything by Michael Moore, Michael Moore is the main character, right? We're following his journey and his usually outrage. But then you get the <laughs> ones that I consider more news-based, where even if there are people who are featured more, they're just there to give a piece of information, and it's about a topic. And that's kind of where Never Sleep Again and his name was Jason and all of it go, it's information dump versus narrative. And that's something that I find I've watched a lot of, honestly, bad Star Wars documentaries. Well, there's just bad documentaries out there, period. But yeah, I've watched a lot of bad Star Wars documentaries. Just because you own a video camera doesn't mean you should make a movie. <laughs> yeah, I love fan enthusiasm. I do. If you are motivated to go do that, that's awesome. If you want to create your skills and show your fandom in that way, go to town. I don't want to watch it, but go improve your <laughs> skills. You know, make a practice run of it, but not necessarily your first go out the gate is worthy of putting it out there and distribution on iTunes and all that. And so I'm a little leery when it comes to fan-made documentaries, but Plastic Galaxy is one of, I would say, three documentaries for Star Wars that have drawn my attention. There was Jedi Junkies, which is another one that's gotten quite a bit of distribution. It had a few celebrities involved like Olivia Moon and the director of Blair Witch was interviewed on it. There was one called The People vs. George Lucas, which did kind of the convention circuit for a while before finally getting released on DVD. Had a lot of publicity, was about George Lucas and his alterations of the Star Wars universe with special editions of the prequels. And then there's Plastic Galaxy. This one is all about Star Wars toys. And Marjorie and I first saw some clips of this when we were on, really, a vacation in Seattle last year. Yeah, we went to the International Collectors event. And one of the activities was we got to see Return of the Jedi in an old movie theater, which was a lot of fun. And before we saw the movie, we got to see probably about 15 minutes of the Plastic Galaxy. Yeah, when they said they were going to show us a fan-made documentary, I'll be completely honest. I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how I feel. Somebody got a camera again, and now I'm going to be subjected to 15 minutes of it. And they got up there. The director, Brian Stillman, was there. And a lot of the people who we were visiting at the Star Wars Collectors event had been interviewed for this documentary. But I hadn't heard anything about it before. I was seeing people who I consider friends, and that should be a caveat I put here. A lot of these people in this movie, we know pretty well, we've hung out with. Been to their houses. Yeah. 
a lot of the scenes you're seeing in this movie, we've been there. We're like, oh, that's his old house. He's moved since this was filmed. So <laughs> we have that connection. But I was a little bit trepidatious just because, again, seen in some really poor works. And when this was up there, though, I was drawn in immediately seeing the quality of the camera work, the audio. We were seeing this in an actual movie theater, so it was blown up and looked still very good. It actually looked better than Return of the Jedi, which we watched an old 1983 print of. <laughs> it was the original version. Wow. Yes. Yeah, and I think through the same channels of people, I mean, there's um, certainly a handful of people in here that I, I know as well, and have, uh, at the very least, am aware of them. I mean, having Star Wars collecting authors in here and other people like Gus Lopez and Steve Sansweet who have done many panels and discussions and interviews, and many of them have been on Star Wars Action News, and so I'm very familiar with who these folks are and I think the first time I became aware of it there were some clips of it uh, put on Facebook shared by you know some of the people in here and I just remember watching it probably wasn't any more than two or three minutes and I just remember thinking oh wow hey I like how this is focused on collecting that attracts me because I'm a Star Wars collector and just like you said I couldn't believe how just good the, the movie looked I mean the, the picture quality was good and the, the audio and everything and it just it didn't have that feeling of hey let me just grab this camera sitting here and record people tell me what they think about collecting and maybe I'll slap it together later and get something worth a darn. I mean, it seemed very intentional in how it was piecing itself together and what it was going to cover and talk about and focus on just the Kenner aspect of collecting in some of the early days of uh, toys. And so I think the fact that it's so focused on a particular area of fandom versus just, hey, this is about Star Wars fandom. Well, that could be anything. And, and and like I say, a lot of those other documentaries tend to be, hey, let's go see a cosplayer. Okay, let's go talk to a collector. Now let's talk to a budding film star or you know, someone, a filmmaker, and let's go see what these people do at a convention. You're just like, oh, come on, my head's swirling. So the fact that this was so focused on a particular topic really made me want to see it. And I pre-ordered as soon as available. You know, it was probably among the first print run to get shipped to my house. So I saw this pretty early on. Probably, I don't know what, what's been out, maybe six, seven, eight months now. And I didn't pre-order it because even though I'd seen the clip, I was thinking it looked pretty good, but it was really the buzz of people like you who pre-ordered it, people coming to the Star Wars Action News Facebook page and my own private Facebook page, talking about it, the people I knew in it, the accolades it was getting. It drew my attention. So I ordered it, but I hadn't watched it until for this review. It was one that had sat on my DVD shelf, and I watch a lot of movies for now playing. It kind of dominates what I watch, so I just hadn't gotten a chance to get to it, but with it getting iTunes distribution, I felt like a lot of more people are going to be seeing this. I thought it was worth giving a real in-depth review to. Okay, Arnie, sounds good. Then let's, uh, let's hear the plot, if you can piece together a plot or <laughs> maybe... Take us through the flow of the documentary, however you want to think about it. <laughs> yeah, again, it's our first time doing a documentary. It, this one doesn't necessarily have a plot. I can't say, you know, Morgan Spurlock's going to eat nothing but fast food and we watch him puke. I mean, this is more a tale of Star Wars toys and the collectors who bought them. It starts introducing us to a lot of people. There's a lot of interviewees here. There's Kenner employees. There's Star Wars fans who some are just billed as Star Wars collectors, some have Star Wars fan sites, some are authors of Star Wars books, be them self-published or professionally published. There's Steve Sansweet, who we've mentioned, 
He owns the world's largest private Star Wars collection. Of course, Lucasfilm, now owned by Disney, has the world's largest Star Wars collection because Lucas was a bit of a hoarder of props. But he has the largest private Star Wars collection, which he has turned into a charity, Rancho Obi-Wan, for the preservation of Star Wars memorabilia. And you can go and tour this massive museum of Star Wars collectibles, fan-made stuff, stuff from 1976 through now, anything he can get. I mean, it's a impressive and obsessive collection and kind of the man who I idolized when I started collecting myself. I always said that I have delusions of sand suites and trying to collect that much Star Wars stuff. So we get all of that, but the focus of this, it's called Plastic Galaxy, the story of Star Wars toys. But that title is slightly misleading. What it really is, is the story of, as you define, Jerry, and what the collectors call vintage Star Wars collectibles, which are any Star Wars toys created between 1976 and 1985 when the original movies were coming out. And specifically, this movie focuses on the Kenner toys and action figures. It doesn't go into very much the other types of collectibles that were out there, model kits and remote control toys, things like that. It very briefly mentions, oh, there were other toys as well. But the focus here are the three and three quarter inch specifically Kenner action figures that started in 1978, the year after the movie came out, and they go into that, and ended in 1985. They really only briefly touch on that when they were doing toys based on the animated TV series Droids and Ewoks. So it's kind of the main character, the story arc, is what happened with the toys, and how did it affect the fans, and how did it affect the employees? There are a lot of Kenner folks here, and that's Something I'll credit the movie with right up front is getting the people who were there, who were designing the toys at the time. A couple other key players who we'll probably mention. One of the big guys there is Peter Santaw, who was the boys' toys manager at Kenner. Tom Beaumont, he's talked a lot to. He was the designer of many of the toys at Kenner. And Ed Schiffman, the former design manager at Kenner Toys. So they have those people there, as well as some photographers who did the box art. Really talking about what it was like to make these toys. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to credit this film with, just like you said, is just how legitimate it is in kind of what it's talking about. I mean, on one side, you've got the Kenner people who made it happen. And, and that right there is, okay, if you're going to tell me a story about Kenner, which like you said, this essentially is, then let's go talk to the Kenner people. And that is perfect. That right there draws me. And I, I really get that this is going to be telling me, you know, the real story. And then on the flip side, on the Star Wars fandom side, you've got some of the most well-known collectors and people who have spent a lot of time understanding what Kenner made and a lot of what Kenner didn't make, which, I, again, this film all around is just really legitimate in who it's talking to and what it's saying about early collecting. I was fascinated by the Kenner details and hearing the Kenner people talk. That really drew me in. And maybe because these people are my friends. I know these guys on the screen, so I was like, okay, there's Jason talking about his collection. I've been there in that room with him talking about that collection. So I, that part, I guess, didn't hold as much interest for me because this is the kind of things that we do when we hang out. Well, that is a couple of points I have because we've credited it for bringing in the Kenner people, and I find that fascinating. But what this movie isn't is a documentary about Kenner. 
it talks about how Kenner started. It's very briefly brought in that it started off as the Cincinnati Soap Company. Procter & Gamble bought them and didn't want to make toy guns. And so they were spun off. They did the $6 million man. And so they found out they could have success with licensed toys. Star Wars, who knew what Star Wars was going to be? Mattel and Hasbro were like, we don't want to make those toys. Kenner decided to take a risk. And it talks about how they signed the deal one month before Star Wars actually came out. And that's why no figures were actually made and able to be sold until 78. They kind of missed the boat on that. And they had to sell a certificate kit. The movie goes into that. But we don't see a whole lot about Kenner in that time. They just talk about what happened. It's a recounting of events of toys. And the people we talk with, maybe 10 minutes of the 70-minute documentary is them discussing the stress of the job and what it was like to deal with the president of Kenner, who apparently was a bit of a tyrant and would publicly humiliate any of the employees who did something wrong. And when they did something right, he'd just be like, good job, carry my golf clubs, is I think what they said. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they talk about the stress. Uh, one of them talked about how he spent the first two years of his kid's life sleeping in a cot in Kenner because it was so high pressure. But it's not focused on that. You could, I believe, from this 10 minutes have an entire documentary that traced the rise and fall of the Star Wars toy empire at Kenner and not focus on anything else. That's not what this is, though. And that leads me to one big question. Who is this aimed at? Because, Marjorie, you pointed out, hearing people talk about the Star Wars collectibles wasn't as interesting because we know. Mm -hmm. It was rudimentary. It was Star Wars Collecting 101. And so Star Wars collectors don't need Star Wars Collecting 101. They've got it. Star Wars collectors might really enjoy that 10 minutes of Kenner stuff that we don't know so much about and seeing the unproduced toys, but the reminiscing about the toys we got, the story of the rocket-firing Boba Fett, we know that. And yet, the uninitiated, the non-Star Wars collector, are they going to necessarily care about the minutia of Kenner employees? They might just want to know what the whole Star Wars collecting phenomenon is about. And so what do you guys think on that? I'm trying to figure out, is there a specific target audience for this? Or was Brian Stillman, the director and creator of this, a little myopic in his vision in that he was a Star Wars fan surrounded by Star Wars fans? I kind of thought that we were the target audience for this. I thought that Star Wars collectors and not your casual, hey, look, there's a new Star Wars movie coming out. We should go see it kind of people are the target audience because they're not going to care about the toys as much as the people who have fond memories of it. I mean, my brother lived and died by these toys when he was a little boy. He played with them so much and he, me and him together, but I don't think that he would get any enjoyment out of this. I think that he'd be bored and he'd be like, oh yeah, I remember that. I've never seen that, never seen that item, didn't even know that item exists. You know what I mean? There's like, there's too much niche and unknown things. I don't think your average person's going to care about a prototype or the wax casting model. One of my biases towards this movie is that I'm born and raised in Cincinnati. So all these places that they go to to show, hey, this is the building where this happened, this is the building where this happened. I've been by those buildings a million times just because I live in the city and I can take you to Kenner Street right now, right next to the Justice League building headquarters. And I know the cities and I work for a PNG that they reference. I mean, even just the small bit about kind of how Cincinnati played into the history of Star Wars, fascinating as all get out. To answer your question, though, I agree with Marjorie in the sense that I think, number one, the collectors like us, let's say, I, I think is the 
target audience because we're the kind of people who like to talk about it. Even if we know, I like to hear people talk about it in a very intelligent way. For instance, one thing maybe you guys are discounting, you guys have been at all these people's houses and seen their collections, but I haven't. You know, I haven't been out there. Most people haven't. It's a select few because it's a local group and they've got, you know, their friends and they brought in to do uh, this video, which is great. But I think a lot of people who are Star Wars Action News listeners, for instance, would really dig kind of what this movie's talking about. Yeah, they know Rocket Firing Boba Fett. Yeah, they know Blue Snaggletooth. But even hearing a little bit of it from the Kenner perspective of how it happened and what it meant to them to go make uh, all these toy ideas that never really made it, like the uh, R2 Choo Choo or the R2 Choo, whatever he called it. I mean, I never heard that little bit before. And, you know, is it the most significant thing in the Star Wars collecting history? No, but it holds my interest because it's something I didn't know. And there's a little bit of that in there. And it's certainly not the story of Kenner because Kenner had a long history before Star Wars, but they kind of do the back and forth. Here's what's going on for the collector. But then the flip side, here's what was going on in the mind of a Kenner employee. And back and forth, what was happening from 78 to 85 was fantastic. So I don't think it's a casual Star Wars fan, but anyone who considers themselves a collector of Star Wars, I think is going to be within the, the target audience of this film. True. The fact that we know them doesn't necessarily, I think, influence my view, because very rarely were we being shown collections. The fact that we've been to their house, that's not what this is. This isn't a tour of Steve Sansweet's collection or anybody else's collection. Right, right. Mostly, they're talking about specific pieces in their collection. Somebody grabs an action figure and says, this was really important because the Tooth Fairy left it for me or something like that. So I don't know that that necessarily influenced me. But Marjorie, you bring up your brother. You see, he, I thought, might be the target audience for this. Somebody who used to play with the toys, who might have a nostalgic remembrance of it. Because the whole opening of this movie is people saying, and I kind of want to go into this after, but talking about how these toys take them back to their childhood. These toys were their childhood. So I thought that former people who played with these toys, which would be almost all of Generation X, would find something of nostalgic value here. Yeah, but I think they'd get lost further on into the movie. They might enjoy hearing the stories, but since it's not all just the stories, you're going to lose somebody there. Because even I, who I buy vintage figures all the time, that's something I can do without help, and I think I'm pretty knowledgeable about that subject. I didn't know a lot of that stuff about Kenner. I've never thought about researching it before. I found it really interesting. But would someone like my brother even find that interesting enough to sit and watch it? You know what I'm saying? But could someone like your brother have seen this and gone, oh, I played with those toys. Oh, you mean those are toys I might have been able to play with? And have it that kind of an experience versus the collector's experience. It's possible. But I just don't think there's enough there to grab someone who is not actively collecting now or has in the last 15 to 20 years because we're approaching that 20-year mark. <laughs> I also wanted to kind of talk about, though, the focus of this. This is specifically talking about vintage collectibles, and they're not truly vintage. If you look up the definition of vintage, we're not there yet. We're getting there. I think it's the 50-60 year mark to be considered vintage, but it's what the Star Wars collectors call vintage. Yeah, these toys are classics. <laughs> yeah. But everybody featured in this documentary seems to be of a type, primarily white, 40-ish male. And they all say how they love the toys because of their childhood. It's like discounting 
the fact that somebody might have been born 10 or 20 years later, watched the movies, loved the movies, and then gone and bought the toys for other reasons. They seem to set out a thesis of, we are aging men who want to relive our childhood, so we own toys. Lisa Stevens was in there briefly, and that was the only female in the entire movie. And I'm not going to throw that card down, because that is not me, guys, but it is a very white male American movie. And Lisa Stevens is an important person in the Star Wars collecting community. She ran the Star Wars fan club for many years when it was done by Paizo, the official Star Wars magazine. She published that, and she has one of the largest Star Wars collections also, and just an impressive collection of -of one-of-a-kind items. That was a very impressive one to tour. But she is the only one there that I see like that. People talk about, oh, I share this with my kids. One guy says, I have two full vintage collections and I have two sons. Now I have a daughter and I have a third one. Show me these kids. Show me that they want these figures. Show me that they would care that their daddy is spending their inheritance buying them figures when they might just prefer the dough. My father collects things. I know your father hoards. Yes. And I dread the day that he dies because you know what that means? My brother and I had to dispose of all the crap he thought we'd want. And that's something that could very well happen. I mean, we've seen little kids celebrations screaming, I hate Star Wars because his his dad was there making him do stuff. And that's the stuff that happens. We've also seen little kids in toy aisles who love Star Wars and their parents don't. I mean, that's the thing I feel this movie didn't get at all was it's mentioned in brief. Steve Stansweet says that other toy companies have realized that parents pass Star Wars to their kids and that there's three generations now of Star Wars fans. You say it, but you don't show it. Nobody interviewed doesn't fit a middle-aged demographic. You know, I I certainly hope, though, if someone is from a younger generation, though, that they would be able to relate. Let's say someone grew up in the uh, special edition era, like they were seven, eight, nine years old during special editions or even prequels. I would hope they'd be able to relate back to, oh yeah, hey, that's how I was with my Star Wars toys. It's good to see kind of what the roots and origins of that was when the films were brand new and people didn't know how big Star Wars was going to be. But you're right. It is a, a, no doubt, it's a very narrow focus on who the collectors are, what their demographics. Absolutely, I get that. But I don't think the movie ever came across as discounting or shunning out any other demographics. I think it was just a reflection that I that I think multiple folks of multiple ages could definitely appreciate and, and, and get into, especially if you collect in such a way that you are getting into vintage toys and you don't know a lot about them. This is actually a good movie for you as well, because it is a really quick one-hour, 101 lesson of what vintage collecting and vintage collectibles are are, are all about. Oh, I completely agree with that. I just think that I'm Hispanic, and if I was 20 years younger and I watched this, the only person who I might be able to relate to is Gus Lopez. And I, if I was a person of color, I might think this is a hobby not meant for me just because it seemed... Really ethnocentric. Yes. And if we're saying that you're already a collector and this is just for collectors, well, there's nothing wrong with making an item just for collectors, but... Can you appeal outside that demographic? I would think any good documentary should be able to appeal to someone who has even the most mildly passing interest. And I don't know that this film would succeed in that. I also don't know that I agree with the thesis that people can only like Star Wars toys if they played with them as a child. 
that's a very good thesis. I didn't even think about that. But there's no, hey, I just got into this toy because I saw The Phantom Menace and it blew me away. Okay, okay, I saw Revenge of the Sith and it blew <laughs> me away and I started collecting. Or my dad played with these toys and I loved playing with my dad and therefore I played with these toys. The best story in the entire documentary was cut from it. And it's a bonus feature on the DVD. It's an extended interview with Steve Sansweet, who was a working professional when Star Wars came out. And he was a reporter, did an article about collectibles, and was told by a collector who had a very valuable collection, the next big thing is robots. And so as an adult, he started collecting sci-fi toys. And then Star Wars came out, and as an adult, he started collecting Star Wars toys. And when Empire came out, he just went whole hog into Star Wars and started buying multiples and things like that. So that is the story that disproves you had to be a child to love this. And yet it was cut. It's a bonus feature. Yeah, no, that was a good bit. And actually all the, I think there's four special features on here. They're all interesting, but you're right. That is one that goes off the path a little bit. And I think, you know, you, you mentioned the thesis and I, I don't think this movie's trying to make any statement against, if I didn't grow up with it, then I can't fully appreciate it. But at the same time, the focus, and one of the things I credit this movie for is that it does have the focus. And yes, it is that the focus is in growing up with it, though, I, beyond just, oh, hey, it's a movie about collecting. No, I think if that's the basis of like, hey, it's a movie about growing up with the collectibles, that's probably why that segment got pulled out. Now, Sansweet was in there for the historical value and the information, whatever, but all the other collectors in there grew up with it, and that's the film's focus. So I'm not going to ding it or, or or even overthink too much about, hey, why isn't it covering this? And I think it's because that's not the point. It's covering, specifically, growing up with it. Okay, that's an interesting thing. And I think because of the title, and because it, I viewed it as a movie about the toys, if you're saying it's actually about the people who grew up with the toys, that makes a lot of sense to me. But you also mentioned Steve Sansweet being in here. A, I don't know that you could have legitimacy discussing Star Wars collectibles <laughs> and not involve Steve Sansweet. I mean, yep, yep, I agree. If you don't have the number one Star Wars collector, then you need to have the authority. I mean, yes, Gus Lopez is another good authority to have, but you need the authorities there. Yeah, exactly. Having them both is just like, we're legit. But it would have been nice to see some people who maybe didn't have massive collections also. I think we did. I think some of the people involved might not have had massive collections, but they were focusing on more the rare, the prototypes, mm -hmm. here's figures that didn't get made, here's store displays, here's this figure, that figure. But a lot of them, like Jason Luttrell, he has a big collection of new stuff. A lot of his collection, the stuff he was posing in front of, was all the stuff made after 1995, which they kind of dismiss. It's given kind of a look down upon. It's like they're looking down their nose at those kinds of toys because the only ones they really talk about are the ugly ones that came out early in the line. They don't talk about literally thousands of figures that have made billions of dollars in the past 20 years. And to your point, I think one of the reasons that is, is even though I think there is a strong focus on growing up with it, it also was bookended by Kenner. And Kenner's name is off of Star Wars toys by 2000. True. So you get that little bit of like, hey, it came back in 95, and then we had Phantom Menace, and then we're, we're done talking about it because Phantom Menace toys were the last ones that have Kenner on it. Good point. And I think they bookended it within Kenner, but hey, growing up with it and what it meant to it. So y you're right. I mean, I bet you could take this hour and seven minute documentary 
cut 15 minutes out over here and put the other 48, 49 minutes over here and almost make two different films. <laughs> you know, one that's, hey, here's a 10, 15 minute documentary about Kenner. And here's what it's like growing up with Star Wars. So it is a little bipolar, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it merged together at least well enough to where folks like us getting back to the who's the target audience can fully appreciate it. To that point of the target audience, yes, I think that if you make a documentary about Star Wars toys and you include bits of information, you have Kenner there and it's well made, which we've all agreed this was well shot. I mean, the composition of the frame was professional. I looked up Brian Stillman. I don't know him. And I see that he has a background in documentary filmmaking. He was an intern on Nova Science Now back in 2006 and worked on a few episodes of that. He was a photographer for a nudist documentary a couple of years ago. So he knew how to set the camera and make it feel professional. It felt like an episode of 2020. And that's a good thing that it had that level of audio quality. It very rarely was there an echo in the room or wind on the mic. And it was very pretty the way it was set up where you usually had a person about a third of the way in following the rule of thirds and then two thirds of it was collectibles and things. I thought that was all very well done. You put this together. You have a professional package about Star Wars toys. Boom. You've got the interest of the collectors of those toys, specifically the vintage collectors, which I have to think is quite a dwindling community. As prices go up, it becomes more exclusive. People can't just jump into vintage collecting easily unless you're just going to buy whatever's in the $2 bin with no accessories in a, a flea market. Not only is it exclusive, it's a literally dying market as the people continue to age. And so by not focusing on any other Star Wars collecting, well, all right, if you're a vintage collector, you're going to love a movie about vintage collecting. That doesn't make it a good movie. Yeah, and I think for the uh, the now playing audience here, I think it is important to mention that the modern collecting, you know, what Hasbro is doing with Star Wars toys right now, there's a little bit of a lull. They're making new toys. We've got a new television series in Rebels, but from, I don't know, what would you say, Arnie, 2012, 2013, there was probably a lot of people kind of getting back into vintage collecting because Hasbro wasn't offering them enough. If you're going to be an active collector, you almost had to go back and start doing some form of a filling the gap in a previous collection. And for a lot of people, that was like, hey, this is a good opportunity to get back into vintage. So I would say the timing of releasing this documentary was probably maybe at a, at a peak of interest in vintage collecting. I mean, I'm surprised and sometimes I feel like, hey, uh, as I do a vintage segment on Star Wars Action News, there are so many people now interested in going back I know you've done a lot of this and a few other our segment reporters have done this as well to where they really go back and focus on vintage collecting. So I think he is hitting at a point in time here where vintage collecting is at a high, which is probably why, you know, prices for things and, you know, we're probably going to come down on the flip side of this once Disney really puts their stamp in it and you get into sequel movies and there's going to be a whole new influx of Disney influenced items. But the, the timing of this definitely is good. I agree with everything you said. I think those were great points. I'd like to add one little thing, though. The people getting into vintage collecting seem to uniformly be of that age of the people I've discussed yeah. who had them <laughs> as a kid. I don't see the 20-something collectors, of whom I know many through Star Wars Action News. There are people who started writing to us when they were teenagers who were getting into collecting and because of Revenge of the Sith and all of those toys in 2005. And when the lull hit, they just stopped collecting. It was people specifically in their late 30s and above 
maybe because they have the money to do it, or maybe because they played with the toys as a kid, probably a combination of both who took this lull and decided to get into vintage. Agreed. Yep, absolutely. Now, we talked about Steve Sansweet and Gus Lopez adding credibility to this. And one thing when I compare this to, like, Jedi junkies or something is, did this need more of a celeb factor? Would it have aided it if they had found a Charlie Day or a Johnny Knoxville or somebody, Nick Cage, he works cheap, talking about how they loved Star Wars collectibles. I don't think they could have ever gotten him. I understand Leonardo DiCaprio has an immense Star Wars collection and, in fact, does a lot of secret bidding through proxy bidders at these very expensive auctions, that he has a massive Star Wars collection. Somebody like that, if you can't get Leonardo, somebody of B or C level, somebody of a name to add a little star voltage here, we go, wow, Steve Sansweet. Largest collection ever. Gus Lopez owns so many movie props. Just such a knowledgeable resource, an endless wealth of knowledge about Star Wars collecting. All of these other great Star Wars collectors who know so much. I mean, just such a great resource. But would it have helped to have somebody who people who don't know the community might have clicked with? That's a really good point because, again, like I said, this was made for people who do collect. My brother's going to sit down. He's like, I don't know any of these people. There's no one to connect with. No one like him. No one with kids, you know, in a family. They talk about it, but you don't ever see it. Whereas if you had somebody that my brother perhaps could identify with on TV or something, he does happen to be a Charlie Day fan. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. That might help get the not average collector in. I, I completely agree with what you're saying. You need that kind of recognition. If you don't collect the level of like, Steve Sansweet, sometimes it can be, it's very intimidating. Yeah, Arnie, I think you're absolutely right on. If if you had something like that, would it give a little bit more notoriety? Absolutely. I mean, I guess it depends if Mr. Stillman has hopes for this of just being a little bit of a underground cult, like all the Star Wars collectors are going to get into it and, and, you know, really build up a following there. Or if he is really trying to get it more into, oh, I don't want to call it mainstream, but you know what I mean, to really branch out and get notoriety beyond that. Um for me personally, I usually find the celeb factor in a documentary like this, especially when there's nothing really... I mean, if you're doing a documentary about what goes on in Hollywood, then yeah, bring in the Hollywood types. If you're doing it behind the music, I want to talk to the band and other musicians and other who interacted. With, but Star Wars collectors, I, I'm good with, with, with what I got personally. I suppose my question is just, if I didn't know Jason or Chris or several of the people on here, what would hearing their childhood memories mean to me? I'm not good friends with the gentleman who told the story about the Tooth Fairy leaving him FX7 under his pillow. And so did that story mean as much to me as if it was a personality? You could have had somebody accessible at a convention or something talking about their childhood memory. And if they were talking about getting a figure from the Tooth Fairy, it might have just added a little bit more relatability, I think, you know, even if it's somebody who's not a current collector. There's just something about saying, oh, that person had the same experience I did versus these people who have grown up Star Wars. And part of the thing I love about this movie is seeing the old pictures, the fact that some of them have photos of them in the toy aisle deciding which one to take. I mean, Put it in perspective, this was the 70s. You couldn't whip out your camera phone. Somebody took a film camera 
into a toy store to photograph their little boy's torment between Chewbacca or Greedo in the toy aisle. I mean, I loved that aspect because seeing just photos of toy aisles from back then stocked with these old toys, I always get into it. Whenever we review a movie like Silent Night, Deadly Night, or Poltergeist, when you get to see the old Star Wars toys just as part of everyday life. I love seeing that. They really focus on that here. And just having, I think, somebody of note outside of the collecting community would have made others outside of the collecting community more interested in this film is what I guess I'm saying. But this film is broken down into segments. I mean, honestly, it feels to me like this was well-aimed at a television broadcast. Each segment could be buffered by a commercial break. I think this is something that could be put on A&E or maybe VH1 or something like that. It's almost a How It's Made episode in and of itself. And we've talked about some of the segments, the childhood memories, the beginning of Star Wars and how the toys came about. Some of the stuff I found really interesting was some of the discussion about which characters got made and looking at some of the lists Kenner had about how they were going to make more humans and ended up making just the more visually interesting figures, realizing that that attracted the kids. It worked on you, because you had to have Greedo. Yeah, I didn't even know what the movie was, and I needed that figure. I found the Kenner stuff just incredibly fascinating, and I could watch a whole documentary about Kenner and the Star Wars toys, and I think there's a lot more to probably expound on there. Now it would be hard to find this, as I'm sure a lot of people are dead or not able to fully articulate what went on during that time because that was a long time ago but in a toy company far far away (laughs) yes i found it really interesting and i for me that part was the best part for me when you start getting into this i kind of like seeing like the old the guy's old sketches of the stuff he drew incredibly detailed sketches of the robots that he wanted to make and that's really neat stuff i even did a series of vintage viewpoint segments on star wars action news about kenner you know, to where, so if you're really interested, go back to some of our old shows. Uh, I go into all sorts of that because, again, I'm born and raised in Cincinnati. I mean, Kenner, heck yeah, I knew, you know, my my dad knew some people at Kenner. My I know some people who used to work at Kenner to this day. And, you know, nobody who has, like, rare prototypes or a rocket-firing Boba Fett they're going to hand me. But, you know, I mean, there's a lot of <laughs> history with that company in this town and appreciation for, for what it is. I mean, Kenner Street still exists, et cetera, et cetera. So f- for that very reason... Anything that went into the background of how toys are made, how ideas were considered and how they were evaluated, even just the history of how they got involved with the license. I mean, we've all heard the story. If you're you know, a collector and been involved or researched or just listened to anything about vintage collecting, you know the early bird kit story. But I think the thing for me to appreciate is like, yeah, I can go on websites and find a lot of this information, but I've got it in a nice little film. I got a movie about it that tells it well. And if I actually, I mean, the way, one of the ways I watch the movie for this review is I put it on my iPad and flying back from uh, England this week, I, I watched the, the whole thing again. And, you know, I could just throw it into a little something and just watch it in a neat little one hour package. And that's uh, great. I I love the Kenner history. But again, I, as you guys are talking about the demographics, I am probably the demographic of the late 30, born and raised in Cincinnati. I get Kenner. I'm a vintage collector. I mean, I'm the same age of these. I, I, I am these people in this movie. So, I mean, I can completely relate to it on every level. See, and I also had some of that where this did excel for me. I'll give it a strength and a weakness of this movie is its use of old assets. 
they are able to play a couple of those vintage toy ads, which brought back even more memories for me than the toys themselves, because I think being who I am, I've been so exposed to the toys in modern day that I don't think I feel as nostalgic about them. They're just toys I own in my friend's own. But the commercials themselves and things like that really drew me in and brought me part of that demographic. By the same token, it's obvious that this was made without any Lucasfilm approval. There is no footage from the films used. They have a few still images that they zoom in on and they look kind of grainy. But at one point, they're actually talking about the character of Snaggletooth. And they say, you know, they made the blue Snaggletooth for the Sears set. Then they made a regular Snaggletooth later on. And then they say, in the movie, you just saw his head. It would have been great if we could have seen that scene in the movie so we could see the character they're talking about instead of just going off of they're showing us the guy talking instead. Yeah, but I'm sure it's very expensive to get the rights and stuff for that kind of thing. There is fair use laws if what you're doing is for documentary purposes. But then again, this is also a for-profit documentary, which hurts a fair use stance. But I, I just wish that they'd been able to get a little bit more of that. And while I applaud completely the cinematography and the audio, the production itself seemed a little bit spartan aside from some great animations. I did like the opening animation. I liked the little animation they had where they kind of Mystery Science Theater 3000 it as they represented all the Kenner employees going <laughs> with cameras to see Star Wars. Which, by the way, was like them showing one of the trailers in the background. So there was seconds of actual, like a, a Lucasfilm trailer for Star Wars. Ah, there, see, there, there's something there. Yeah. Unfortunately, Snaggletooth wasn't in the trailer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I love the animation. But you know what was lacking from this was, in addition to film clips, music. Yeah, you're right. There was no music. I mean, they had some of their own music, and you're right. Their transition animation, if you will, from kind of segment to segment, person to person was really well done. But yeah, it, it screamed that we don't have the Lucasfilm library of sounds, sound effects, music, clips, anything we wanted to show. It it probably was all, I'm guessing they had to call from any private items they probably had in their hands. I actually didn't notice the lack of Star Wars music, but now that I sit and think about it, I'm like, you know what? That's really nice. I, I guess in my head, I assume that they did because everything that anyone ever makes about Star Wars, they use the sound effects and it gets really annoying at times to constantly see this used. You're like, okay, you're original. Yep. Mm -hmm. Keep doing this. But it was fine. It didn't really take away from it. It actually, I probably didn't get annoyed because of it. I didn't want them to use the John Williams music. A, that would be expensive, and B, that is overdone. I'm glad you're worried about their budget, Arnie. I, well, you know, I just look at realism. <laughs> what could be done? But there was no music at all, really. They had a song that played in the opening credits, a song at the closing credits, a couple of transition sound effects. There's a little bit of music. In the credits, there were four songs listed. But by and large, there's not music behind it, which made it feel more newsreel and less, you know... Any biography often will have just some kind of music. It's stock music that you just buy and it's royalty free once you've bought the CD. And when you have a touching moment, you play the little, you know, lullaby like music. And when you have bad things happen, you play the scary music, that sort of thing. This just felt like a bit more of a Spartan production in that regard. But the animator, filmer, who I'm assuming, is Brian Stillman because he was the director and nobody's listed as cinematographer or audio guy. I'm thinking Brian might have been a pretty one-man show here. That's a guess. But that's all really well done. I just think that 
there's just one step below being at that Michael Moore and Morgan Spurlock level of documentarian. And it's probably just related to budget. And the fact that I'm saying that this guy independently got that close should be taken as a compliment. But Jerry, you mentioned rewatching. One thing about documentaries for me is I don't often go back. King of Kong, I remember well. If we ever were to review it for now playing, I would rewatch. But I remember it fondly. Wouldn't necessarily rewatch it for fun. This is something I would rewatch. But again, it's because I'm a Star Wars collector. Already when we were watching it, when they were interviewing Ken Simmons, who was the photographer for a lot of the later stuff, when we were watching this, I'm like freeze framing. I'm like, all right, how's his setup? Look at that camera work. Look at the backdrop and how it's sloped. Oh, wow. He's a light straight overhead. I mean, I'm analyzing this for that and the discussions of some of the prototype toys and seeing the hard copies of the toys and seeing how a toy is made. There's some of that here. It is very much a 101 on toy manufacturing process, which isn't all that different today than it was in the 70s and early 80s when they were making the old Star Wars toys. You still sculpt it. You still do the hard copy. You still send it over to Asia for mass production, and they make the molds. One of the segments of this movie I found really interesting, though, and I wonder if it's, again, because I am a 40-year-old male who has bought Star Wars toys for most of his life, but the way they got into the philosophy that Kenner was the first company to command kids, collect them all. <laughs> it worked on you. It did. And it worked on Steve Sansweet. I mean, I like that they got a little bit into that marketing and that psychology of it. That's something else I think could have been delved into a little bit more. I almost feel like they hit so many topics, but they just never went deep enough. Yeah, it would just skim the surface of a lot. And I really think with the foreign items that they talked about, Lily Letty and Palatoy, there's so much there. And there's a huge, huge amount of people who collect Lily Letty specifically. I mean, we know some people, Luis and Josefina, who do, and they're experts on it. And there's so much more you could have gone there. And it was just kind of like an after. I mean, we've listened to a 55-minute presentation on Lily Letty. Two of them! And and I have talked at length with people about them just because they're really cool collectibles and they're really neat. And it'd be nice to talk about this because a lot of people never even thought about that stuff. And that's something you could really draw in because that's not been done. I was surprised, actually, on the flip side. I was surprised they went into it at all because that did then get outside the theme of growing up with Star Wars and Kenner. I mean, to me, that would have been a very random thing to go 15 minutes into international collecting unless... Unless you had, and this would have been a great opportunity, unless you could have also included specific collectors from other regions and then shared the similar experiences of it. I mean, hey, maybe that's a perfect sequel. Traveling around the world or, you know, if, uh, assuming there's not someone in the States who grew up somewhere else. I know there's, a, I can think of at least one gentleman in uh, the, the Seattle collecting organization that probably could have fit that bill. But to me, it seemed like a little bit of a, well, I'm really surprised they're going here because it doesn't fit the general theme of the film. Yeah, I agree. And if you're not going to go deep into it, why bring it up at all? If it's just about the Kenner toys, why are we talking about a Canadian dart gun? I love the Canadian dart gun. I've never heard of it. <laughs> I'll never be able to afford it from what I've seen in this movie. But if you're going to call it Plastic Galaxy, nice title, but it, it seems inappropriate 
if you're barely going to touch upon anything outside of a nine-year span and really not much outside of America. They touch as much on international collectibles as they do the modern toys, which is three minutes here, three minutes there. It would have been a great chance to bring in someone who wasn't a white male in his 40s. Yeah, and obviously we know these people, and they're one degree of separation away from Josefina and Luis who do the Lily Letty and we the French collectors. It just seems like if you're going to bring it up, you should bring it up well. Because this isn't intending to be an overview of Star Wars collecting. This is a vintage Star Wars toy documentary. And so I like it for that, but it seems weird that they do this other stuff in it. <laughs> well, you know, plastic country with just or plastic continent would have been a little odd. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I mean, I think the only pass I give it is that it's certainly the collectors today who grew up with it, who then went beyond what they grew up with. And, you know, the Lily that I um, example with the R2-D2, you know, that was literally taking the three and three quarter inch scaled R2-D2 and blowing it up to a 12 inch scale. In fact, I dove in and collected the Lily Ledi 12 inch figures for a little while myself and picked up a few of them along the way. And I really dig the Palatoy stuff. So for me, I didn't mind seeing a little bit of that because, yeah, I mean, to me, it's like, yep, I have that. I, I used to have that. I Yep, I know exactly what that is. So I give it a little bit of a pass, just briefly mention it because it is the same people talking about how they got there. So Jerry, Marjorie, do you recommend Plastic Galaxy, the story of Star Wars toys? Jerry. Yeah, I th- think it's not going to be a surprise. I absolutely recommend this movie. I and mean, there's so much about it that really fits for me. Again, my roots in Cincinnati, the kind of collector I am, the the vintage focus. I've, I've had my collection for years. For me, though, and this might be a little how I differ in my thinking about these recommendations, is that I definitely recommend it, but I'm not exactly sure to who. I mean, a general now playing audience listening to this because it's part of the now playing feed, perhaps. You know, you got to be a special kind of person to want to jump into any random documentary. So if you're a Star Wars fan, yeah, absolutely watch it. If you're a Star Wars collector, you've probably seen it already. If you're a person who you like now playing because of the Children of the Corn retrospectives and the uh, Friday the 13th this and the just the whatever the movie you know, the, that you just like movies and you enjoy podcasts like this, I'll tell you, hey, it's it's a documentary about Star Wars collecting. So your mileage may vary, but I think the movie's very well made. I like the focus of it. I tend to not like Star Wars documentaries or or even, you know, other fandoms, because it's just, hey, let's make a documentary about Star Wars fandom. Well, that's everything, and it's nothing, right? So those documentaries are sometimes so hard to connect with any, even a person like me, who's a, or us, who's Star Wars fans, because what you're going to take an hour to talk about when your topic is Star Wars fandom? Well, you could be nowhere near where I live. If it's cosplaying, if it's, you know, uh, people who are budding filmmakers, or, or whatever, and you talk about Star Wars influence in that, even I might not connect with that. So you got to understand what this movie is. But uh, overall, I think it's an excellent film, uh, especially by the standard of Star Wars documentaries we've seen in the last few years. I I think this one's uh, up there is one of the best ones I've seen. Marjorie. I'm torn and I'm kind of with Jerry on this because I don't think that the average person who has no investment in Star Wars whatsoever is going to enjoy this. If that's you, or if you're just like, yeah, I've seen a Star Wars movie, they're pretty good. I don't think you'll enjoy this. I think you'll be bored. I just don't think it's for you. If you're a collector, 
Yeah, it's interesting to watch that Kenner stuff. I, I found it really interesting. I think it's kind of neat to see it all, it all happen because they kind of got caught with their pants around their ankles because they didn't expect this movie to be this big. And it changed toys forever. So I, I kind of give it a half and half, if you will. If you don't like Star Wars or if you mildly like it, not for you. You're just really probably not going to enjoy watching something about old toys and white guys talking about their toys. If you're a collector... You're going to find it interesting, the very least, the background story of how these toys you came to love are, were produced. Yeah, three for three. I mean, I think this was well made. I think that this was a success for what I'm guessing was Brian Stillman's intent. I've not spoken to him in depth about it. I did ask him for permission for some of the video graphics and things, but I haven't gone into depth with him about his intent, his director's intent, because I wanted to review it as a film. But... As a documentary for Star Wars collectors, I think he was successful. And so that's a green arrow. I don't think what he made was transcendent. And that's what I feel you really need a documentary to do to make a widespread appeal. So like when we review horror movies on here at Now Playing, there are certain movies that I recommend to horror fans. And I'm a horror fan, so yes, I like it. I recommend this to Star Wars collectors who are middle-aged or older. And so if you are one of them, I recommend it. I still think someone like Marjorie's brother, who has fond memories of the toys, might find this mildly interesting. Interesting enough to turn on, to watch, especially if it gets on Netflix or something like a lot of these documentaries have. But it's not going to turn anybody into a fan of Star Wars collecting. It's not going to turn anybody into a fan of... Star Wars, and like you said, Jerry, if you're just a Star Wars fan and you enjoy the movies, no matter how much, you could have Star Wars tattoos and live and die by the EU, but if you didn't play with the toys as a kid or buy the toys now, specifically the vintage toys, it's not going to get you that much. There's not enough of a human story here. It's called Plastic Galaxy. It's a plastic documentary. So I enjoy it. I think all the Star Wars Action News listeners who like vintage toys and who like Jerry's Vintage Viewpoint segment, absolutely check it out. And if you're listening to us over on the now playing side of it, maybe. It's well made. If the topic interests you, if you'd turn it on, if it was on A&E because you're somewhat interested in the topic, you're not going to be disappointed. If you have no interest in this topic, it's not going to convert you. There are some documentaries that I wouldn't necessarily be interested in, like the people standing in front of man's Chinese theater in Confessions of a Superhero, that's not something that would bring me in. But that transcends. That tells such a human story. This is a story about toys, and so you're not going to feel empathy. You're not going to be drawn in. But yeah, it's, I think, three green arrows here for what it is, given this review from three Star Wars collectors and just trying to look at it also from the point of view of a non-Star Wars collector. You know, one compliment I will give this film is, as I watched this, I thought about other toy lines that I'd like to see this kind of story, be it Transformers, G.I. Joe. I mean, heck, I would even watch, although maybe not pay $14, $15, $20 or whatever to own, but if someone made a documentary like this about Mego toys or He-Man or something that I don't know a lot about, but as a toy collector, I could relate to, hey, I'm you know, wondering what a lifelong He-Man toy collector felt 
when he or she was getting these toys and She-Ra and all that good stuff. I, I would watch that. I, I, I would like to see other toy lines get a similar treatment. I don't know if they've got the momentum that uh, Star Wars fandom has to back it up to where something like that would ever get made. But I'd like to see more documentaries done like this on some level. I agree. But given that this is niche, Star Wars is a huge industry. Oh, yeah. But it's not even the number one boy's toy anymore. I think there are other licenses like Transformers, He-Man, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that could support this. And if you're only going to play to your base, if you're making an item just for collectors, and I mean, I've talked to the gentleman at Hasbro. They say you can't make figures just for collectors. It won't be profitable. Documentaries are a different thing. If you're making a movie just for the collectors, I think you could find that. G.I. Joe collectors, absolutely. I mean, that's something that spans even more generations than Star Wars. But... Speaking of playing to your base and whether or not something's viable financially, now playing wouldn't be viable financially if it weren't for donors. And I just want to take this time to remind everyone we are in the midst of our fall donation drive where we're not looking at Star Wars, but we're looking at Lord of the Rings and Leprechaun. Now playing is a podcast with no advertisers. We have no sponsors. We are completely independent podcasting supported by our listeners. And so we do pledge drives. And right now, people who by December 31st donate $15 or more can choose a silver or gold level donation. Silver level donors get six bonus reviews exclusive only to donors who donate during this drive of all six of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films. His original three Lord of the Rings trilogies those have been released to donors. Anyone who donates right now will get those three podcasts immediately. And then as we build up to The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies, we're going to be reviewing all three Hobbit films. And you can hear Stuart and Jacob, my co-hosts on those podcasts, review The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings books over at booksandnachos.com. If you're more into horror, we also have the Leprechaun series. All seven Leprechaun films, including the WWE reboot Leprechaun Origins, are available to donors. If you make a donation of $15 or more for the gold donation, you'll get all seven of those podcasts in one Netflix-like bulk download that you're able to listen to all at once or meter out to whenever you want to listen to them. And if you like both, we have a platinum level donation for $30 or more, which also includes three exclusive bonus reviews for the Lord of the Rings animated films, the 1970s Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, and then early 80s, The Return of the King. So if you're of the age where you loved playing with Star Wars toys as a kid, maybe you remember watching those original animated Lord of the Rings. You can hear our reviews of those with a platinum donation of $30 or more. All those shows are only available until December 31st, and your donation helps keep Now Playing operating. We could not continue Now Playing without donors. You can find out all the details by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage, nowplayingpodcast.com. If you want silver, click on the Pay Now link with Gollum. If you want gold, click the Pay Now link with the Leprechaun. And if you want platinum, there's one with all three, the Gollum, the Leprechaun, and Bilbo Animated Baggins. Click that one and you'll get all of these podcasts in your email. And these are available only for a limited time. 
We're going to be putting these in a vault like we do with all of our donation series come December 31st. So please, if you can, before you have to go out and start doing all your holiday spending, help support independent podcasting. Help us continue to do this show next year. But without your pledge, we can't continue. So please head to our page. If you can't do $15 for one of the series, if you can do 10, if you can do five, if you can do three, please click the banner, send us a donation. We greatly appreciate it. There's no bonus podcast for less than 15, but there's the podcast we do every single week for free for everyone, plus the bonus reviews we've done. We did Conjuring, we did Annabelle, we do extra reviews throughout the year. It's all because of donations. So please, we greatly appreciate your support. So Marjorie, Jerry, thank you for joining me. Thank you, I'll join anytime. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks. And until next time, may the pegs be stocked and the force be with you. Always. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Everybody that walked out realized that we had something here that was incredible. Star Wars Action News is your source for all Star Wars collecting news. Head to SWActionNews.com for the Star Wars collectible photo galleries, podcasts, and more. Everything was about Star Wars. Everybody wanted to know about Star Wars. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another in-depth movie review. The early fans had that hunger for it. And so when that hunger was met, oh, the satisfaction. The, the, I, I, I've finally been fed. In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find hundreds of movie reviews, including all the Marvel Avenger films, Spider-Man, Star Trek, Terminator, Blade Runner, and more. Crazy stories with weird characters. While at our website, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this show with other listeners. The parents will not bother you for two hours because they knew you were in another universe. If you enjoy the show, please post about Star Wars Action News and Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, or your social media network of choice, or just tell a friend about the show. We would also greatly appreciate a five-star review written on iTunes. A link to our iTunes feed is at our website. Add it all up, you say to yourself, I was there. I was a part of that. It was something bigger than me. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. I felt like I belonged there because all the other people and characters there were a little bit eccentric and strange. Star Wars Collecting News is posted on the Star Wars Action News Facebook and Twitter feeds. Links to our Star Wars Action News social media pages or at SWActionNews.com. It's kind of neat to be able to go, look, here's a whole progression of how this thing was created. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, NowPlayingPodcast.com. How much can we have and how fast can we have it? You can also show your support for Now Playing or Star Wars Action News by shopping in our Cafe Press stores, where you can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. The link to the Cafe Press stores are available from our websites. I will never get rid of this because this meant so much to me. 
Now Flying and Star Wars Action News are produced and edited by Arnie Carvalho. Everything was polished, and I thought that was neat. And then to put a brand new form under that kind of treatment would be really, really nice. Credit narration by Brock. No, I didn't feel like I was a rock star or anybody special or different. Podcast video editing by Andrew, Josh, Daryl, and Barrett. At that time, they were probably just doing whatever they could to get these products made. Website designed by Jason. He looked at me and he says, good. Star Wars Action News photo editing and graphics by Jay. It came into the office as a script and a series of black and white photographs. Now playing and Star Wars Action News graphic design by Chris. Of course everything's in a hurry. If it wasn't in a hurry, they wouldn't have you there to do it, so. Now Playing and Star Wars Action News are not affiliated with X-Ray Films or Lucasfilm Limited. The film Plastic Galaxy, the story of Star Wars toys, is the property of X-Ray Films and no infringement is intended. Show me the play value. What play value are we giving these kids? Star Wars and all that the Star Wars universe contains is trademark and copyright Lucasfilm Limited, a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Company. All rights reserved. Clearly they saw this rich universe of, of Star Wars that George had created with all these environments and ships. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. It's pretty insidious when you think about it, but you know, it was fun and sort of it was a fun sort of insidious. This podcast of Star Wars Action News and Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. And now Boba Fett, Star Wars villain with his laser rifle. Boba Fett is not yet available in stores, but you can get him free with four proofs of purchase from any Star Wars action figures. He was also on a, a nudist documentary. He was additional photography. How do I get that job? Eight women and men who use their nakedness to transport us beyond the last sexual and social taboos. The people who are often nudists are not the people you want to be nudists. This is true. Yeah, I was going to say, they're, they're rarely attractive people, by the way. <laughs> hey, one of them was Miss Exotic World 2004 named Dirty Martini. I don't know if that was her given name. If so, kudos to her parents, Mr. and Mrs. Martini. <laughs> Sometimes you gotta play with the hand you're dealt. <laughs> Martini! There's Steve Sansweet, who we've mentioned, who is the world's largest star... Who? <laughs> no, he's not that larger man. <laughs> I was gonna say, you might want to, you know, misplace modifiers here. Um. <laughs> He owns the world's largest private Star Wars collection. Of course, Lucasfilm, now owned by Disney, has the world's largest Star Wars collection because Lucas was a bit of a hoarder of props. So wait a second, though. I think Steve Sansweet now has the largest collection of Disney memorabilia. Maybe not. You got to watch out <laughs> well, for the Diznuts. And Marvel collectors. I mean, it all, it all comes together. Martini! <laughs> Hey, Arnie, while, while we got a break here, you, you said uh, really early on, I didn't want to stop your train of thought, but you, you said collectibles from 1976? Yes, I mean that. Okay. Because, uh, like, the Chaken poster 
Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I got you. I got you. I got you. Yeah, stuff that came out the year before the movie. At the Comic Con. Yep, yep. Yeah. <laughs> um. Ortini! Oh, I completely agree with that. I just think that I'm Hispanic, and if I was 20 years younger than you, me, said that like this is a big con- confession and shock. <laughs> yeah, it's like what? <laughs> Sorry, Arnaldo is Hispanic, guys. <laughs> Arnaldo, I know, right? <laughs> Ortini! 